Good morning, church family. Last week, my dad wrapped up a sermon series about making choices. But the, the message I was given today, um, I've been thinking about it for a few weeks, it kind of fit um, where my dad ended last week. So I'm going to kind of tag this out as a caboose onto the train. Last week, my dad talked about our choice to bring the kingdom of God to this world. And he talked about how we are chosen for kingdom work. So today I wanted to talk about choosing to do kingdom work and, and how, how, how we do that, but also like how we can, how we can do it best, um, I think. So if you could turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 9 and 10. I apologize. I forgot again to put the page number in my notes. So one day I will figure that out, that I need to do that. So this section is, uh, this is in the middle of a listing of King David's mighty men, his top guys, his top warriors. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Sorry, I thought I was hearing things. So, so this sounds like something out of an epic movie or TV show, doesn't it? You know, two armies show up, they're facing each other, the Israelites ta- start talking smack, and the Philistines are like, and all the, all the Israelites run away. And Eliezer goes and faces down an entire army all by himself. And he wins. It's easy to read this kind of paragraph in the Bible and be like, oh, that's awesome, and kind of move on without really thinking about the implications. So let's unpack it a little bit. At this time in history, there was really no such thing as a standing army. When a time of war would come, Ordinary guys, farmers, craftsmen would take whatever they had at hand, whatever tools. Maybe they had an axe for chopping firewood. Maybe they were hunters, so they had a bow and arrow or a sling. And they just kind of show up to wherever the battle was going to be. So there wasn't a whole lot of organization, um, uh, armor, and swords. These were prohibitively expensive items. An ordinary person would not have this. So Eliezer listed among one of David's mighty men. We also know he carried a sword, so he was probably one of the few professional soldiers in Israel. Kings would often have a group of elite bodyguards whose sole purpose was to protect the king. So the Israelites are on the battlefield facing the Philistines. The Israelites flee, and Eliezer, who's kind of in the back where the king is, leaves his post, and he walks out there with his sword, and engages the enemy. And he fights for so long, when it says his hand clung to the sword, he was fighting for so long, his hand cramped and froze to the sword hilt. He couldn't unclench his hand. He had been holding it for so long. Not many people know this, but I did some fencing when I was in college. Not, not fencing with like the white tights and the, and the rapier and the, the speed and the quickness and all that. Uh, um, the fencing I practice is called kendo. 
and it's a sport derived from the historic Japanese samurai sword fighting styles. So the, n none of those are me, by the way. Um, the, the wooden sword that they are fighting with is actually a tube. It's com composed of four bamboo slats that are bound together. And in kendo, you put on a uniform and you put on armor and you proceed to beat each other over the head with these wooden swords. It, it's painful and brutal, but it is a lot of fun. Practices last for a very long time, two hours, four hours, um, and it's pretty much nonstop. There's never like a, okay, everyone sit for a minute. Okay, let's go again. It's pretty much a never-ending rotation of uh, attacking or being attacked by somebody. I also had the opportunity to attend a, a one-day seminar on HEMA, which is an acronym for Historical European Martial Arts. On uh, the past 10, 15 years or so, there's been a dedicated group of scholars who have, uh, from various texts and historical sources, are resurrecting what uh, medieval knights and Vikings, the styles they would have used to fight. And it's really pretty impressive the kind of things they're, they're finding and developing. And unlike kendo, which is a sport with, you know, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of ceremony, uh, hema, this is more like mixed martial arts with swords. Yeah, um, if, if you have your sword and you have an opportunity, you know, you, know, you punch the guy in the face. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's uh, brutal fun is probably the best way I can describe that. So for eight hours, one glorious Saturday, I got to run around trying to beat people up with steel or wooden swords. Now, before any of this starts to sound at all impressive, I have to tell you that I'm, I was not good at any of this. I lost every single match except one. I had a kendo match with an older lady who hadn't been practicing very long. <laughs> and we tied. <laughs> I'm like the 2017 season Browns of fencing except worse because we tied because no one scored. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make with all that is that I know what it's like to swing a sword around for hours at a time, trying to hit somebody without getting hit yourself. A number of things are going to happen. First thing is gonna happen is your shoulders are gonna start to ache and get tired because all the swings come from the shoulder. You're gonna start to sweat You'll be wearing gloves, but things are, start, things are going to start to get slippery. The muscles in your forearm are going to start to ache from gripping the sword. Your lungs are going to start to burn. Fencing, it, for a long time, it's like running a marathon, except you're sprinting every few seconds. You're trying to see everything and think of every possible option all at once. At the same time, you're trying not to think. You're just trying to act and react. You're trying to be quick and precise with your movements, but that's harder and harder the longer you go. You're looking for your enemy to make a mistake, to leave an opening. It's exhausting. And you start to get tunnel vision real, real quick. You know, if there's a line of like 30, 30 pairs of guys all fighting each other, you're just focused on the one guy in front of you or girl. And this isn't even real combat. This is 
my experience of something that just barely resembles combat in the smallest sense. So in this passage, we're talking about Eliezer facing down an entire army single-handedly. This is impossible. This is suicidal. He had to have walked to that battle knowing he was going to die. Because it's not like the movies where you have one guy and he's got five guys surrounding him and he can just block everything and it was exactly what everyone's going to do. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it makes for exciting television, but it's not how real life works. So the fact that Eliezer survived this fight is miraculous. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So we set the stage. I bet some of you are thinking, what does any of this have to do with doing kingdom work? You know, I, I don't see guys getting sword fights that often in the U.S. Well, in, in Ephesians, Paul talks about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, by the grace of God, but we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. As a follower of Christ, you will experience real spiritual violence in this life. And for many of our brothers and sisters across the world, they face the daily threat of physical violence, even up to death for their faith in Christ. And Paul was not a soldier. He was a scholar. He was a teacher of the law. That's his background. So for him to talk about, in terms of battle and weapons and armor, about our spiritual life. This is significant. He's choosing a very apt metaphor. In Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about the full armor of God, I just want to read this passage real quick. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's the background for our discussion. Let's look at what Eliezer can teach us about doing kingdom work. First, Training for God's work. Eliezer was a professional soldier. He had seen battle before that day, and he likely saw battles after that day. He didn't wake up one day with no prayer experience or training and decide to stand alone in a field with a sword he borrowed from somebody. His whole life, he had been preparing for that moment, whether he knew it or not. I mentioned how bad I was at fencing. It's because I didn't train, really. I, I would go to practice, but I did really nothing, no individual training on my own. I what, what do you call it? Uh, an enthusiastic admirer of fencing. I was a fan, 
but it was really not much more than that. It doesn't really matter what profession you are in or hobby you're pursuing, there's some kind of ongoing learning involved, right? I learn new things every day at my job. I'm never gonna know all there is to know about a subject. But I really have to know a certain amount about an area before I can perform in that area. How many of you do your own car repairs? Few. Excellent. There's a learning curve there, right? You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to figure out how this thing works. And you start tearing stuff off and like, oh, okay, that, that's how brakes work. Uh, no, that's not how it works. Once upon a time, I decided I was going to learn to do my own car repairs. So I did what every person who doesn't really like talking to people and asking questions does. This was me four years ago. I bought a book called Auto Repair for Dummies. I got the book, flipped through it a bit, put it on a shelf intending to like read it later when I actually needed it. It's sitting on a different shelf today, but I still have not read any of that book. And I bought that book about four years ago. This past summer, though, I decided this, this is the moment. This is where I, I start learning. I decided I was going to change the brakes on my wife's car. Prior to that, bear in mind, the most I'd ever done on a car was change a flat tire and replace a headlight. So like any good analyst given a task, the first thing I do is research. I go to YouTube, I pull up a video of a guy changing brakes on his Honda Accord. Two minutes into that video, I stop it, I call up my mechanic, and I schedule a time for me to bring in my wife's car so he can change the brakes on her car. <laughs> I realized very, very quickly I did not have the tools or the knowledge to begin to think about replacing my wife's brakes. This guy was throwing around terms I'd never heard before. He's using tools. I'm like, I don't even know where I'd get that right now. I never did read Auto Repair for Dummies, and this video was like Auto Repair for Smart People. I wasn't anywhere near that level. Difficult situations require preparation. It just doesn't just happen. And this is something we can forget about a spiritual battle we are in. It's not enough to know of God and listen to a sermon once a week and pray only at mealtimes. That's not the life we are called to. The battle is real. Are you prepared to be the bedrock that your family needs to be to face difficult situations? You need to train. And by the grace of God, we have all the tools we need to train. We don't need any special gear or equipment. Mountain climbers need special gear and equipment. We don't. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we were to give the Bible a different name today, my vote would be doing the right thing for dummies, and I would be the first in line to buy a copy, because Lord knows I need that. But like my auto repair book, just having the Bible sitting on a shelf, skimming it once in a while, that, that is not enough. 
constant practice. We need to be training ourselves and each other for the kingdom work God has for us. When I was in Kendo, we drilled the basics at the start of every practice. Basics, basics, basics. And after every tournament, our teachers would take the whole, that whole first practice after tournament, and we'd drill the basics over and over and over. And there was a saying we had, that tournament kendo is different from actual kendo. Because in a tournament, when you're in that simulated combat situation, all like the rules and knowledge and all the practice you've done, it starts to go out the window. Because you're, you're struggling against something that isn't standard. You're having to adapt. But afterwards, you come back and you drill the basics. That, those sloppy swings you do, you get them just right, just right. Do the basics over and over and over. Pray, read the Bible, listen to God. These are the basics of our faith. So you're on board. You've gotten on the program, you're walking the path. Now what? Doing our basics. What What is the next step after that? And I think we as believers, we can really overcomplicate this. But I think it's pretty easy. Look for the things that need to be done and do them. Eliezer's story is the story of two leaders. The first leader was the first guy who ran away. At some point during the, the, you know, the confrontation, there's a guy who said, I'm not going to survive this. I'm going to run the other way. He started running, and then another guy started running, and then a couple more guys, and soon the entire army is retreating. He led the way, and everyone else followed. Everyone except Eliezer. He saw everyone running the other way, and he picked up his sword, and he walked out to the battlefield, come what may. He had a faith and a confidence we should all aspire to. Not one person followed him out there to battle. I bet there came a point where he was looking around and like, so any, anyone else? But it didn't matter. He chose to do the thing that needed to be done. And that moment he chose to lead. And it really didn't matter that anyone was following him. On Tuesday, I woke up with a large number of big, red, itchy, burning welts on my feet. Some kind of bug had been biting me in my sleep. I'm like, I gotta go to work, but this is kind of disgusting. I wanna figure out what's going on. So I sent my wife to work. She didn't get bit, she was fine. Um, and I started deep cleaning our apartment. You know, I'm vacuuming, I, and I'm, like, I'm, I'm bleaching things, and like doing everything I can think of, keeping an eye out for bugs. So along the way, I discover a couple of little black bugs that like to jump. So I captured a couple of them in a Ziploc bag. And I took, a, I called a guy, I was like, hey, can you, if I bring in bugs, can you identify them? He said, yeah, so I bring the bugs in. Oh, you've got cat fleas. We don't have a cat. 
how did we get cat fleas? He's like, well, does your neighbor have a cat? Yeah, your neighbor's cat got fleas. And like, well, but the neighbor's cat has fleas. How did we get fleas in our apartment? And so I was kind of mad about this. I'm like, really, God, fleas? I had plans. I was going to go with my buddies tonight. I have a sermon I need to prepare. So I called the landlord, and he said a guy is going to come out Friday to spray. I'm like, okay. So I only have two days, two more days. I need to worry about getting bit by fleas. So how do you prevent fleas from biting you? I'm doing some research. Like, oh, they don't like lavender, apparently. So we've got essential oils for that. We Lavender essential oils on everything, on our sheets, on our clothes, shoes, around the door. Sleepless socks and long pants on, even though it's 85 degrees out and our AC sucks. We, we actually bailed and went and stayed at my parents the rest of the week. So Friday came, the guy sprayed, and supposedly we don't have fleas anymore. At no point, well, not at no point, but at what point in this process did I actually have to call a guy? I had to call a guy to see if I could identify the bugs, and I had to call a guy to spray. I didn't need a step-by-step guide on how to handle the situation. Not because I've been there before, never had fleas before. But imagine a three-year-old wakes up with red welts on his feet that hurt and burn and itch. What's he going to do? Mommy, mommy, daddy, my feet hurt, my feet hurt. And then you got to sit him down and be like, what's going on? I don't have kids, but I imagine this is how it will go. So you sit the three-year-old down and you say, okay, son, you got to go clean your room. you got to make sure you vacuum, use bleach where it's appropriate. And then if you see bugs, make sure you catch them, put them in a Ziploc, Ziploc bag, and then you call a guy to identify the bugs. Then you drive out there, make sure you know, figure out what bugs they are, and then you call the landlord so they can have a guy come spray. That's what you do, right? No. No, you take care of their feet, and then you go take care of the thing. You could tell a three-year-old to do all that, but they're not going to be able to do any of that. (laughs) Now, say a 23-year-old wakes up with welts on his feet and comes running, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, my feet hurt. You're going to treat them a little bit differently than the three-year-old. At some point during our walk with Jesus, we've been a spiritual three-year-old. And there are people who, towards the beginning of their walk, they're going to be a spiritual three-year-old. These are people who need help and they need care. And with the right help and care, they turn into spiritual middle schoolers. And then spiritual high schoolers. (laughs) And hopefully at some point, they graduate and become some level of spiritually self-sufficient. And hopefully they come to a point where they start helping others along. It's not really a matter of time. Time does not seem to be a factor in this equation. In Kendo, and this is, my understanding is this is like a general concept in Japan, but I learned it through Kendo. There's the teachers, the sensei, and then there's this concept of the senpai, who is an elder student. So, The teacher will teach, but then it is the elder student's job to help along those beneath them. 
So you'll obviously have one student who's the most senior. Every person beneath them down to the very last has someone below them. There is leadership and training and teaching at every level. It's built in. And I think that's something we can learn from. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, uh, now, now the, the, the writer of Hebrews is addressing a specific issue in the church he's writing to. I'm not trying to project that on our church. I just want to talk about the concepts he's using. So he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We know from this, there, there are people, they, they, they get the spiritual milk and eventually they get the spiritual food. At some point, each of us ought to be a teacher. Not necessarily an upfront kind of teacher, but everyone at some level is in a position of leadership, whether you like it or not. If there's someone younger, less developed, less knowledgeable, less mature than you in your family or your church family or your school or your workplace, you are in a position to lead them. It's interesting. I, I've read a few book, recent books on leadership, and it's like there's this principle that, like, oh, there's leadership at every level. I'm like, how did no one, like, figure that out? until 2018. It's weird. Having been raised in this church, many, many people have been in leadership positions over me and still are. And the vast majority of those have modeled godly living for me. And on occasion, there have been those who've modeled ungodly living for me. Keep in mind that where you're at, you are leading somebody. It's a question of where you are leading them. I mentioned earlier that Eliezer's victory was impossible by human standards. So how was he able to persevere? God brought about the victory. It says right there in the text, God brought about the victory. But God could have brought about the victory anyway, right? He didn't need Eliezer out there. Israelites could have all run away and the Philistines could have chased them and God could have said, zap, no more Philistines. He could have done that. But he didn't. Why? When I think of my relationship with God, I I see God like a parent and myself as a toddler. And if you have a toddler who brings you like a drawing they made, a couple stick figures or a craft or something. They're like, look, I made this for you. You treat that like gold, right? This is something precious that they made for you that they're presenting to you. That's what God does with us. When we choose to do kingdom work, it's imperfect and often messy, 
but God uses it regardless. In Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, this is Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish builders. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Christ is the foundation. And when we put his words into practice, it secures us against the storm. Not because of anything we do, it's because of God. Eliezer's house was not built on shaky ground. It was built on the foundation of God's word and he trusted God to see him through the storm. So that's story number one, an epic tale of a man who obediently stepped into a moment of need and allowed God to work a victory through him. Now I want to look at a man who is similar to Eliezer in many respects. This is the story of Naaman. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
So we know Naaman was a professional soldier. We know he won many victories, and he's described as a mighty man of valor. He had achieved the pinnacle of success and had defeated every enemy he came across except one, disease. Even the healthiest person can be brought low by disease, and leprosy carried with it an extreme stigma. But by God's grace, Naaman hears of the possibility of a cure. So he travels to Israel with a bundle of cash. The combined value of gold and silver is about $4.5 million in today's exchange, well, yesterday's exchange rates, if I'm going to be honest. So he shows up with his entourage, you know, his horses, his chariots, he's got his servants with him. He's ready to pay whatever price necessary to be cured. And Elisha sends a servant to go tell this mighty man of valor who's won victory after victory and is one of the most powerful men in the world, goes and tells him to take a bath. And this makes Naaman angry. But why? I mean, last time I checked, taking a bath wasn't really that hard. I mean, it doesn't take that long. You know, why isn't Naaman rejoicing that God saw fit to extend mercy while just requiring a small act of obedience? Naaman just wasn't happy with God's terms. Naaman clearly disliked Israel. If his complaints about the river are any indication, he just assumed, believed that the nation of Israel as a whole was inferior to his own nation. He was prejudiced and he let his prejudice and pride get in the way of receiving the best life God had to offer him. He almost missed it. And how often do we do the same thing? We have a problem we bring to God and he gives us a word and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, we, or God asks us to do something and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't like your terms. Maybe it's something distasteful we don't want to do. We only want pleasant experiences in our life. Maybe it's in a place we don't like or it involves a people we're different from. We only want to serve God when we're most comfortable. Maybe it requires more of us than we are willing to give up. We want to help others as long as it doesn't require too much sacrifice. Maybe it's not big enough for our ambitions. We want to do something important, something meaningful. We don't want to do the small stuff. When we try to live life on our own terms, we are missing out. My best life is the life that is fully surrendered to the will and purpose of God. Let's think back to Eliezer. What were God's terms that day? What were the terms of victory? Be willing to stand and fight against the Philistines. God asked an army to stand, and only one man did. And God still brought about the victory. God could have asked Naaman to take up his sword against an army, and I believe Naaman would have done that. That's what he was familiar with. That's what he was comfortable with. But God didn't do that. Sometimes God's ask of us feels huge. And we need to trust him in those moments. The insurmountable odds that seem stacked against us, they are nothing to God. 
Sometimes God's ask is so simple, it can seem superfluous. But those small moments are just as important as the big moments to trust God and be obedient. Naaman was on track to ignore God's request and go back home sick for the rest of his life. All for his pride. Fortunately, he had servants with him who are willing to call him out on his pride. And to his credit, he listened to them. You know, I, I don't know what kind of relationship we had, he had with these guys, but if they were comfortable calling him out, then he was surrounding himself with people who were willing to tell him when he was messing up. Let's be honest, I am going to mess up at some point in my life. I think it's fair to say that we all will. And it doesn't matter if, when we mess up, if we're spiritually a three-year-old or spiritually an elder statesman. In the first service, I said spiritually older than dirt, and no one laughed, so I thought I'd cut that out. We're going to mess up. When we do, we have a choice. Choose the way of pride and double down on our sin, you know, avoid blame, insist we've done nothing wrong, put the fault on others. Or choose the way of humility. In Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God accomplished many great things through Naaman, but Naaman almost missed the realization that it was God who was doing those things and not him. God had upheld him even when Naaman wasn't serving him. The lesson God wanted to teach him was to be humble. Finally, we must choose to love one another. In Galatians chapter 6, the first six verses. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Forgiveness seems to be in a pretty short supply in our society today. Lots of people angry against lots of other people for all kinds of reasons. As the body of Christ, we, the church, need to set an example for the world to see. This is the kingdom where God gives us to point others to Christ. Not just with our words, but in the way we live our lives. My dad has used this illustration before that God's church is on a rescue mission deep behind enemy lines. Our enemy has lost the war, but he is desperate and hateful and vindictive. And he is going to destroy as many people as he can before the end. 
And as long as we meet together in the name of Christ, he is going to try to tear our church apart. And until Christ returns, it is not going to end. This is the reality. We're moving into a season as a church family of discerning God's vision. Everyone has been invited to play a part, and I believe that everyone needs to play a part. I want to encourage you to sharpen your swords. Read the Bible. Ask God to show you what part he wants you to play. Listen. When you hear from him, choose to step into that part. It may be something big, maybe something you're not comfortable with. A handful of years ago, I would have said, I would have said I'd never be standing up here sharing the word of God to a large group of people. And the first time I did it, it was very uncomfortable. And today, it's still kind of uncomfortable. But every time I do, the amount of truth and knowledge that God blesses me with as I prepare is priceless. I don't speak out of my own wisdom. I speak from what God has shown me. It's not anything I knew already. On the other hand, the part may be small. There's nothing wrong with small parts, big parts. They are all important. The part God has for you, he picked out for you specifically. God's going to use each one of us to bring about his victory. So I'm going to close in prayer. There's no closing song, so. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this amazing church family that you've blessed us with. You've been so good to me and mine for so many years, Lord. I ask that you bless each one of them today with safety, with your spirit. I ask that you would walk with us in this new season of discernment, that you would speak to us, show us the parts you want us to play, Lord. Help us be receptive to your voice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to the podcast now, and for more info, including sermon outlines, visit our website at www.kurtlandchristian.org.